The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. How does 25-year-old two-time MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo get drafted 15th overall in a weak draft class? Our own Adrian Wojnarowski investigates the twists and turns that led to a franchise and league-altering selection way back in 2013. A three-part series that tells this unique story, including interviews with individuals close to the process, as well as a one-on-one sit-down with Giannis himself. Check out the Woj Pod special, The Giannis Draft, wherever you find your podcasts. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a Monday morning after Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you all had a jolly and safe Thanksgiving holiday and... The NBA offseason is basically over, minus one or two pieces of business, including the biggest piece of business in the entire league up in Milwaukee. We'll see what happens with that. To help us take stock today with a focus on the Eastern Conference and a little, you know, try-hard franchise that is close to our hearts, I'm thrilled to welcome back after a, a long, by by his standards, low-post hiatus, one of my favorite guests, the very first guest ever on this podcast, the great Kevin Arnovitz. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Ah, oh, I'm well. I missed it. I missed the grammar. I missed all of it. How was Thanksgiving? Did you keep it? Did you keep it tight? Did you keep it safe? How, did, it, did did you cook a turkey? I, I cooked a duck, but we have Ooh. a nine week old golden retriever puppy, so that was the main event. It is it is an all consuming affair. So that that was our Thanksgiving. Can you reveal the can you, can you reveal the puppy's name? His name is Howard. Okay, his name is Howard. How did we pick that? You know, I think we both like old guy names. So it was sort of in the Marvin Melvin Howard. I have a dear uncle who sort of a big brother to me who passed away in 14. So it did a little honor. But um, I have never been, my life has never been more captive by another creature's defecation cycle than it is right now. Like it is, it is an all, he is, he's a love muffin. Golden retriever puppies are insanely cute. I love dogs, love dogs, love the idea of a dog, love petting other people's dogs, love when they jump on me, love everything about a dog. They're better than cats. I don't want to hear any argument for cats. Cats are snooty. We've talked about this before. Dogs love you and they show you their love. Nothing, nothing will will push you off the idea of acquiring your own dog more than waking up really early for whatever reason, walking out of your apartment building at 6 a.m. on a freezing cold winter day and seeing a miserable looking dude smoking a cigarette and picking up his dog's poop like that. That would like you see that once you're like, you know what? Not for me. Other people can do it. I'm not going to do it. We, we sort of look at it like the process, like it's Philly the first two years, right? Like it's endearing. It's adorable. They are going to lose every time you go into the building, but you're building for something greater. And then there's that moment where a three-year-old golden is in your life and he's independent. And yeah, you got to take him out every four hours. You walk him. It's 78 degrees here. You know, like, like, but it, the first two seasons are just pure investment. And that's sort of how I'm looking at this dog. And it'll be wonderful and loving and endearing. And we are going to lose a lot of games. He has already done that several times on our, on our living room floor. So best, best Thanksgiving be side dish, best Thanksgiving side dish. What is it? I'm like a butternut squash guy. Ooh, I, I don't like any of the standards. I'm not. Wow. I'm a, I like, I like butternut squash, a little brown butter. That's just freaking fallish. It's great. I think it should replace the yam in the rotation. I feel outclassed. I feel like I, 
arrived to the party underdressed or something. I was just going to say stuffing. The stuffing is polarizing. One of my friends yesterday was saying they don't like stuffing. I'm like, stuffing is like bread and herbs and spices. Like, what is not to like about that? And stuff, it, for me, it's stuffing and uh, cranberry sauce. Pumpkin pie, yes or no? Yes. Hard no on pumpkin pie. Or we can't yes. ever have Thanksgiving together. Pumpkin no. pie is not even a top 10 pie. It's just, it's not even close. See, I have controversial turkey views, and I've, I've aired these on Twitter back when I was actually on Twitter, which is turkey's BS, man. Tur- the only reason we eat turkey is because some, it was like the only thing here in the 17th century. Like, like, and, and it's dry. And, and when you go to other great culinary countries, like when's the last time you went to like a, like a, you saw on a, like a, a French or, a, or an Italian or Japanese menu turkey? Nobody eats turkey. We eat it because it was gobbling around in New England. It was the only wild species. They had to eat something other than tree bark. And like now we're subject to this just awful let me push back on your turkey on your anti-american i'm just gonna call it what it is anti-american turkey hate number one many years ago in san antonio during the finals you and i were part of a group that went on a barbecue field trip and the highlight of the barbecue field trip was the turkey because we had such low expectations for the san antonio area barbecued turkey that when we got it it was delicious and juicy and it was incredible number two my wife because we did thanksgiving solo for the first time cooked the turkey and guess what it came out not dry it came out everyone's least favorite word in them in the english language it came out moist let me say it again moist so i don't i don't want to hear your turkey let's forget enough turkeys enough turkeys let's talk about the try hard feel good franchise that you and i have both uh had a soft spot for for many years now um and i think one of the, if not the most interesting teams in free agency, the Atlanta Hawks, who clearly after three losing seasons and, and you know, pretty deep pain losing seasons, had a mandate from the top to yes. compete for the playoffs. And they had oodles of cap space more than anybody else. They used it to sign Danilo Gallinari to a three-year $60 million deal, which very importantly and kind of slipped under the radar, only $5 million guaranteed in the third season. Bogdan Bogdanovich, after the Bogdan Bogdanovich fiasco in Milwaukee, on a four-year, $72 million offer sheet. Chris Dunn, two years, $10 million with via the room exception. Rondo, two years, $15. Uh, drafted Onyeka Nkangu. Uh, and who am I missing? I'm probably even missing something else. They were so active. John Collins remains eligible for an extention. Yeah. Just a lot yeah. of stuff happened. A lot Solomon of stuff. Hill, you know. Solomon Hill. 10th, 11th guy. They got, I don't know if they'll hand will they hang on to Snell. Tony Snell in the Tony Snell uh, uh, Deadman Stretch Fest 2020 for the Pistons. Um, so sort it all out for me. This team clearly wants to make the playoffs. And by the way, one of the things that we keep forgetting is like making the playoffs is now different. Like seven to ten, you're in the play-in tournament. Like we, we keep, I keep thinking in my head, the Hawks are the favorites for the eighth seed. Have the Hawks made themselves the favorite to the eighth seed? Can they get to seventh? I'm like, wait a second, the eighth seed. Yeah, it's an important advantage. You 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 can win once to get into the playoffs rather than having to win twice. You can lose. You have a margin fair to lose in the play-in tournament, but you're not even guaranteed to make the playoffs. I have to, like, recalibrate my brain. So, Mr. Arnovitz, what thinks you of the Atlanta Hawks, both their outlook for this season and whether this was their optimal use of resources going forward? Yeah, I mean, starting with a macro, right? Like, this was kind of a laughingstock franchise from my childhood after the Dominique errors till, you know, the Bruce Levinson debacle and forward, right? There's always been this notion, and I sort of subscribe to it, this is a sleeping giant 
of a franchise because Atlanta is an exceedingly appealing place for NBA players. Not only do a disproportionate number of them kind of grow up within two, three hours of Atlanta, you, you can fly there obviously from anywhere. Um, but it, it's just, it, it's a great city for like young athletes. Um, there's a reason many of them spend their off seasons there. Okay. So now we have new ownership. They're committed materially. Um, but they do this sort of Philadelphia thing, right? Like we're even going to bring in Lloyd Pierce. You have a long runway. Uh, we're not going to specify how long that runway is, but it's long uh, until it's not. I think they got seduced a little bit by that nice March in 2019 mm-hmm. where it was like, hey, we're closer than we think. Um, but I also thought they were kind of admirably restrained. Um, we're not going to talk because I don't think we need to litigate the Luca thing anymore, right? Like this is what it is. Uh, it, it's Trey and Cam Reddish for Luka Doncic. There will always be a little part of me that died inside as a Hawks fan um, waiting well, for a Luka I, my you, entire you, life. You have to talk about it a little bit because... All right, let's talk about it a little bit. Like, well, I'm, you you I'm have to talk broken. about it only in that it's not going to work out. Like Dallas is going to win the trade, period. Yes. End of story. Um, and, you know, Trey, look, Trey Young is really good. He's a, He could yeah. be a transformative offensive player. He's just not Luka. And so all of this, all the machinations, all the moves, all of everything is not necessary. All the rushing is not necessary if you have Luka Doncic. The path forward is much clearer to you. It's much simpler. It has much more flexibility built into it. You don't have to be hell-bent on where do I find defenders to surround Trey Young. Not that Luka's a, a plus defender or anything, but it's not the same. Um, so, yes, we, can, we, we don't need right. to litigate it. The litigation is over. The jury has come back. Uh, there might be one holdout somewhere, you know, they have, to go, they have to go back into the meeting room for a couple more hours, a couple more nights sequestered at the hotel, whatever. But it 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 does have ripple effects that at least we have to acknowledge. So that's a, that's all a, I think we should say. Right. Um, yeah. And the verdict is here. Guilty. Right? Like, like they lost the trade. Um, I think this is a really interesting and, and good use of resources. As you said, the mandate has come from the top, uh, you know. Both management and coach are kind of on the spot this year. I'm not going to talk about temperatures of seat, but there is a mandate that it is time. It is time. Um, I like what they did in this respect. They, in terms of how do you allocate your resources, do you really spend it on Dan, uh, you know, Danilo Gallinari uh, for two years? As you say, the third year is, is sort of marginal in terms of commitment. Um, you look at 2021, I think there's always this sense when you're an aspirational team, like let's save our cap space. We'll be in the sweepstakes. And that's like, if you go down the 21 free agency list, who's going to Atlanta? And and I don't mean this as a knock on the organization. Like Paul George is not walking through that door away from LA, right? Like none of the top tier free agents are going to walk through that door. So how do you start aggregating not just future assets, but present assets, your young guys, tradable contracts, and oh, by the way, win along the way. And I think this is a really interesting and good way to do it. Um, I think Bogdanovich is an electrifying piece. I think the team is going to be a lot of fun. Um, Gallinari is, I don't, I don't know if he's a sixth man for them. Uh, he's sort of a, can be a, you know, sort of productive three, four, by the way, they're, they're swimming in, in fours right now. We can talk a little bit about that positionally. Um, you still have sort of, let's see how it materializes with Hunter. Um, I think Reddish is fascinating and we can talk about him sort of as a player. Um, I think he could end up there like very strong second best player before this is he, all. He over. had a really nice finishing kick to yes. the suspended season that feels like ancient history it's hard to even remember what it looked like but it was it was it was you know as you said it in in reference to their 2019 
you know, when they were like 11 and 13 over their last 24 games or whatever got everyone so excited. Some of those late season things are like, you can't read all that much into it. You have to watch to figure out what's real and what's the product of playing a shitty schedule against tanking teams. Uh, the Cam Reddish development felt like, okay, this is a guy who, yeah, long way to go, shooting a big question mark, blah, blah, blah. But after X amount of months has um, found a way to digest and absorb the speed and athleticism and rhythms of the NBA game that overwhelmed him and has responded. That felt real to me. Yeah. The improvement in, and this is an abstract term that I've come to really love, like feel, right? Like the, the improvement in feel over the season, there's a lear steep learning curve there that you're watching on a nightly basis with Atlanta that is really impressive, right? By the way, the shooting, this is a guy who's 80% from the line and isn't the sort of uh, the general criteria that, you know, if a guy has a really good shot at the line, he has the potential, even though he's never been, I think, above like 33, 34% either at Duke or Atlanta. So, but I'm, I'm sort of hopeful there and maybe there's a rational exuberance, but this guy should be a very decent shooter. I don't, I don't know that he's a 40 guy, but he should be a 37, 38 if you base it on sort of the stroke at the line, which I think is around 80%. So, you know, that's where I'm totally hopeful. I also think he's a plus defender eventually. Like I think I he's too. kind of a... I think it's, you know, there's, there's really, again, the feel kind of translates to the defensive side. Like, I, I think he's decent enough laterally, but he's really good at the anticipation. Um, the other thing is Capella, right? Like, you know, Atlanta will tell you, hey, that was our biggest free agent acquisition because we kind of, in the dark of night, you know, without much fanfare. In fact, we all analyzed the trade from the Houston side. None of us analyzed it from the Atlanta side. Um, by the way, like, I think, so here's what I like about it. A rim runner with Trey Young is potentially really dangerous. <laughs> like, like number two, I never thought Capella is an all NBA defender. I think he's a little overrated defensively, but he's a hell of a lot better what they've had. Right? Yeah, he, he's not going to embarrass himself on the switch. You know, he's not on when he's an Islander. He's not on roller skates. He can do. By the way, in any meaningful game, he's not going to be on the floor at the end unless you're, you're playing a more conventional. I'm not. I'm not sure that's true. C Capella, you think? Well, I I think he. Um... I think it's interesting because everyone, and, and, and I'll, I'll include um, myself, has been, I think, a little over fixated on the positional overlap surrounding John Collins, right? And that's a big name that we haven't really mentioned yet. Like John Collins, well, he plays a lot of four. You just brought in Danilo Gallinari, who, you know, probably needs to play a lot of four. And DeAndre Hunter played some four last year. Well, okay, shift John Collins to the five. Oh, wait a second. You just traded a first round pick for a five in Capella, who can't play any other position. I, I think. That, that stuff is real. I, I think the rush to get John Collins out of Atlanta, you know, where's he going? Are they going to trade him? Are they not going to extend him? I think that's been a little premature. In fact, I, I would bet they do extend him um, before the season. I think they will come. If I had to predict, I would predict they come to an agreement. And also, like, talent is talent. Like, yeah, the fit's not perfect, but talent is talent. And so, like, on some nights, Danilo Gallinari can play a decent amount of three around John Collins and Clint Capella, like against some teams that don't have dynamic wing, like he can guard even OG Ananobi. He can guard, you know, whoever the Wizards, the Knicks, the Hornets. Uh, the, now, now Reddish is off the floor though. Well, I we'll, we'll talk about lineups and all that, but like, yeah. I just think you can survive with him defending threes on a lot of nights. On some nights against, you know, Brooklyn or Boston or whatever, it's going to be tougher sledding for him. And the same thing with Collins Capella, like they'll find a way to play together. Capella, I thought lost a little bit of, of of athleticism toward the end in Houston. Like he wasn't as airtight on switches as he used to be, but he's pretty damn good. I think this team here, I don't even know what their starting lineup is going to be. I would predict this. I think like you mentioned Reddish. I, 
I, my best shot at it would be Trey Young. I think Bogdanovich walks in as the starting two. Hunter, yes. Collins, Capella. You know, Gallinari, I, they, Travis Schlenk talked about it, has came in with the idea of he's going to come off the bench and be the sixth man, which you normally don't pay $20 million a year for that, but fine, whatever. We talked about their cap situation. Like, I think that's a, a good way, in addition to the Rondo signing, a good way to stabilize the minutes where Trey Young didn't play when their offense went into the <laughs> completely. Um, I, I think, I, again, talent is talent, and I think... Um, you know, that relegates Herder to a bench roll, Reddish to a bench roll, or or Hunter to a bench roll if you prefer starting Reddish. I actually think that's okay for a year or two to slow the development of the young guys or to expose them to more advantageous situations as reserves. Chase some wins now. It's not like you're benching those guys completely. Like they're still gonna play, they're still gonna play be, be a decent play decent minutes. I think you can thread the needle a little bit in that regard. Yeah. I mean the thing is is uh, you know, Hunter's the kind of guy who theoretically I love. Um, he's a terrible ball handler right now. Um, he's a great defender. I think he's more suited for the four, particularly if you're going to have Capella out there. Like there is, it is as much as Trey Young can kind of drain shots from 37 feet. And obviously Bogdanovich, you know, is a really good shooter. I mean, at some point you can have up front, you need to have a little stretch. I mean, Collins is actually a really nice shooter. Collins so shot 40% Collins, from three. He shot 40% yeah, from no. three last season. So I kind of have four scenarios for Collins, right? One is, and I agree with you, I, they, they agree to a number. Um, obviously, Collins is not a max player as much as I think he and his team kind of, you know, wanted that or his team. Uh, there's no extension, and they look for serious trade options. Uh, and and I think there is you can, and it's great because even if you for a team that trades for him, you can still control him in in free agency, right? This isn't Andre Drummond. Number three, no extension. You work together for a sign and trade, or four, the old Clippers, uh, a la Corey Maggette, Elton Brand. You don't pay him. You see what he can get in the restricted market, and you match. Um, and just you know, kind of assume that there is less of a market for John Collins. I think all it takes is one. So I'm with you. I think they'll come to a number. I I, I just kind of ahead of sense it. So I think you and I agree on that one. The but it, it's sort of a fascinating game. The only thing that I wonder, I, I I think the Bogdanovich contract is fine. I think he fits their team great in this respect. If they start him at the two or even the three, but probably the two, I I just love like I like Kevin Herter made strides as a secondary ball handler. We talked about Reddish. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure those guys are quite ready to play that role in a way that is dynamic enough to uh, accomplish what I really want to see accomplished, which is get Trey Young moving off the ball a little bit. Like, we we hold him up to this standard of Curry, which is not fair. Curry is the all-time off-ball threat. There are very few guys with his level of on-ball talent who are going to embrace that cutting, screening, getting other guys open role the way he has. It's It's just his DNA is special. Steph Curry is a special player. He's a special guy, and he's embraced that role. I do think it would be healthy for Trey Young to tap into that a little bit. I think it would help uh, his teammates feel more involved on offense. I, I don't. I do think there is a shelf life to being um, like James Harden and the Harden heirs, like Trey Young and the you know Treyettes or something like you know everyone just standing around watching the Trey show. And I and I think he could be devastatingly effective doing that kind of stuff. And to do that, you need another ball handler who really has the respect of defenses, who's a crafty playmaker, who's a threat to score and score from three levels. And I think Bogdanovich can be that for them. I like that signing. He's only 28. You know, yeah, he's a little older than their guys. Fine. Like you don't really, you don't get to, you know, build the perfect team all the time, age-wise, position-wise. 
The Gallinari one is interesting to me because the fit is going to cause some ripple effects as much as I just said talent is talent. Um, the fit isn't as clean. And it's not just 2021 cap space. Yeah, they're missing out on that. Who cares? Nobody's coming. It, it, depending a little bit on what happens with Collins, it's essentially could be like cap space for a long, long time because Collins' number will hit, then Trey's number will hit. You know, all the team options on guys like Hunter and Reddish are like eight, nine, ten million dollar bills by the end. Those guys then flip into bigger deals. Like they could really just be out of cap space for indefinitely. I mean, obviously you can change your roster, you can move off guys, you can do this and that, but it, it was their last kind of bite at it potentially. And I just wonder if they just signed Bogdanovich, how many wins are you losing out on if you if you demur on Gallinari and sort of sign a couple of spare parts here and there in his place? And obviously they had the cap space to do much more. You have to hit the floor, all that. Um, but Danilo's a good player. He's a really good offensive player. Defensively, I think he gets exposed a little bit in the playoffs. That's the one that I'm sort of like, I want to see how it works a little bit. Well, this is other thing. And, and we've talked about nobody's coming. The other thing I really like about this, um, this sort of spreadsheet now is if at any point an all-star becomes disappointed with their situation, wants out, wants to be moved, you now have the ability to aggregate, I don't like to use the word assets, but aggregate talent, good contracts, desirable pieces to make a move for a guy like that. You know, And again, if you can create the sort of environment where tr being traded to this place is not Siberia, right? Where, hey, you're going to play alongside Trey Young, which, which may or may not be a, a, an alert. I can tell you organizationally, one thing they're happy about is they heard the noise that people will not come to play with Trey. They heard it. And yeah. they are happy that people came to play with Trey. And like some of it is the money. Like maybe a lot of it is the money. But Bogdanovich coming and, and Danilo coming have sort of at least neutered that noise, which was, I think, a little early and a little premature, but it was definitely out there. And I do think there are some players who I viewed that as, eh, I, I think I'd rather go somewhere where I'd have the ball a little bit more. Like, I don't think Atlanta, for instance, was ever real for Gordon Hayward. Um, and in Charlotte, he's going to be able to have the ball quite a bit. But but guys did come. They did come. Those guys are good players. Like, you can't you can't sneeze at that. Again, they're not Kawhi. They're not PG, whatever. But, like, those guys are good. And they had a lot of interest around the league. Yeah, I mean, I don't tend to think this way. But there's also something to be said with the, the log jam at the four um, that – it can be a good stress test for younger guys. There, a certain complacency can set in if a younger player knows he's just inheriting the position rather than competing for that mantle. And I, and I think that, uh, but there is going to be, I mean, there's going to be there. This is a young roster that is going to have to be patient, right? Because not all of them, you know, you just listed a lineup that doesn't have cam reddish in it. Right. I maybe or Herder. okay with that or her or Herder, Right. We haven't even talked about her. Who's the right? starter. This was a guy. Who has been a starter. Yeah. So, you know, th there's that. And, you know, Hunter is sort of searching for a position. I just don't think he's a three um, long term unless he can you know, establish. I mean, the other thing about your sort of secondary ball hander, like I think Reddish, like he's a great slasher. He's a good passer, you know, and I think he'll get better. There's just a lot of I'm you know, it's funny. I went from a cam skeptic and then I started watching basketball and it was like, oh, I get he, it. He gets places. Um, like yes. when he gets going, he's got spin moves. He's got he and his spin moves are forceful. Like he has forceful moves that don't just take up space. He he gets 
north, south. Now, um, sometimes I can get you out of control. You're moving too fast. Like that's a typical young player thing. But I thought the development for him was real. We haven't even talked about Chris Dunn, who will also, I, I would suspect Chris Dunn will be almost a full-time wing for them. I, between Trey Young and Rondo, I don't see a lot of Chris Dunn running the offense as point guard kind of minutes. And, and he kind of fell out of that role in Chicago anyway. Um, but defensively, that dude is an absolute monster and yes his three-point shot has never come but he shot a career best from from the rim uh last season and i believe from mid-range as well i'll look that up shortly like he's gonna get minutes on their team and he made my all defense team uh he he's a an absolute delight to watch on defense he will get into your jersey he will make you regret stepping on the court if you can't handle the ball at an expert level um so let's talk about just sort of uh, question oh, go ahead. are you undone i want to mm-hmm. ask you a question undone so all we hear in this game, we talk to coaches, we talk to assistant coaches, defense at the point of attack, right? Like like this is a pick and roll league. A guy like Dunn is kryptonite, right? Obviously def- offensively de- uh, offensively deficient. Why was there no market for this guy? Because it, it goes against everything you're saying. And, and I mean, Zach, I think you have excellent taste in basketball personnel. And I think if you value the guy, I would imagine the league should sort of value the guy. And there's no market for this guy. Like it, it just, there was none. And I'm shocked because by the way, by the way, expensive. I'm totally, I'm totally wrong. Just to clarify, he, 50, he shot 65% at the rim, which is by far a career high, 18% on long twos, which is uh, obviously not a career high. for, for Chris <laughs> no, no. Um, Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday because the bulls new front office took a little flack for um, not showing any interest in Chris Dunn. And Shaq Harrison, too, who's a player that, you know, made my Luke Walton All-Stars at least once um, and is another guy who's an absolute freak athlete. You know, Zach Levine told me on my podcast, there's only one guy on this team who can compete with me athletically, running, jumping, all that. And you'll never guess who it was. And I actually I already knew the answer because I had done some legwork on it. It's Shaq Harrison. I do think there's a sort of bias among diehards like us to um, fetishize the guys who are like, Oh, like no one's watching Chris Dung, but like 75 crazy Bulls fans and us and like, oh, Shaq Harrison, like almost nobody saw this guy's like 650 minutes last year, but I did. And like, I spotted a couple <laughs> things that are interesting and my God, the Bulls just dropped the ball. I can't believe the Bulls don't watch Shaq Harrison and Chris Dunn. And it's like, you step back and you're like, you know, like it's really not that big a deal. <laughs> the Bulls yeah, don't right, watch funny them. Shaq Harrison story. It's not a story, uh, kind of fact about Shaq Harrison, um, when things really started to go sideways, let's not even call them sideways, downhill in Phoenix um, in the Ryan McDonough era, one of the things that really pissed off ownership was going to a preseason game and watching Shaq Harrison as their point guard and just said, enough. And, and it, it, this is obviously a few years ago, but it was like, like Shaq Harrison was the catalyst for real conflict in Phoenix because he personified what at the time ownership saw as just awful planning at that position. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's macy's.com slash gift finder. Let's zoom out and talk about where we think the Hawks fit in the East. I will yeah. just ask you directly. Are they a playoff team? Where do you see them? Yeah, because I, I mean, just excluding them for a second, I have Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, Brooklyn, Miami, and probably Toronto. I'm, I'm sort of, they probably going to appear on my all-confusing team just because I think it might be a like one of those burp years um, for a franchise that's great and certainly a, going a places. Burp, a burp year? Yeah, because a consolidation year, as our friend John Hollinger always said, is sort of that you, 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 you it's generally reserved for a younger team. Um, I, I don't think of Toronto as a younger team that is sort of, you know, building their roster. They had a little, like, this might be a consolidation year for the Memphis Grizzlies. Burpier is sort of, they lost some key places, uh, pieces. Many of their core guys are there. They're probably worse this year than they are last year. They're not going into the toilet. Um, it's a, like, they'll regroup, they'll be cap space. They'll, they're, you know. And this is so the, that, this that is the basketball equivalent of a burp. Yeah, it's just sort of a, a not a hiccup, just but a, a burp, specifically a you know burp. What? All right, let's call it yeah, like a hiccup burp hybrid. But let, we'll talk about that on the all confusing. So those are the six. But I actually I have Atlanta right there. I mean, Atlanta, Orlando is always the most you know one of the more competent defensive teams. They play themselves into five hundredness, uh, which in the East, as we know, is generally enough. And and I have sort of Charlotte because you know a because I think JB is a, a really good coach. And I think they have enough there now to, you know, win games they're supposed to win. And if you do that in the East, you know, you're looking at, and I always need to calibrate the new 70 win season. Yeah, I, I think you're looking at 34 wins right there and, you know, just off the bat. And then like Chicago is sort of a mystery guess to me. If like it, but theoretically I like Chicago, um, but there, so I have Atlanta, Orlando, Charlotte is sort of my seven, eight, nine with Atlanta, probably the class of the field. So I have them right there hosting a play in game with, you know, look at if all things hit. The one thing, Zach, and we'll talk about it later, is there's a mystery here for the entire league, which is COVID. You know, one key guy goes down, that's 12 days minimum, right? So you're talking about five games in a 72-game season. And that's assuming the guy's asymptomatic and on day 13, hey, he's back to 100%. You can speak to this. I, I just think we're going to be looking at a world where, oh, crap, like three of their top five starters are out right now. And, and I, in that world... All of these prognostications are just out the window. Well, yeah, I don't. I just don't have the bandwidth right now. This year <laughs> sucked so so hard that I just don't. It's we all know. We've seen what's happened in football. We saw what happened in baseball. The Broncos. I don't know what the hell happened to who they ended up starting a quarterback yesterday. 
um, talking to teams over the weekend, you know, they're they're sort of budgeting in like three weeks. It could be three weeks for a player who tests positive when you consider that they're they're going to be away from basketball activities. You don't know if you're going to hit that, you know, short timetable, the 10, 12 day timetable really seems optimistic. And and like you said, you know, a couple guys get it and that's your season. The, the way the schedule is going to be compressed, very likely, like it could be a lot of games. And yeah, you know, it's it's there and it sucks and we're there's no more bubble at least for now and uh this is real life and there's only so much you can do but so we i tiered the east just like you did i have a top tier that is six teams boston i think um took a step back in playoff equity with hayward leaving but i think regular season i i, I people are freaking out a little too much like boston's gonna be really good miami miami hey man there are you. Oh, Miami. I'm sorry. I, I forgot. Oh, by the way, I have Miami. I just completely looked over on the list, which, by the way, you've I heard did the, say them, right? You've heard the noise. I don't know. I, it doesn't matter. Um, you've heard the noise as much as I have that there are skeptics around the league. Like, oh, that was a bubble. Fluke maybe too strong. And, you know, Miami is like the military. You know, they're, they were oh, well, they were well. Suited. Real quick, back before I get in trouble, the Indiana Pacers are in that sort of secondary group because I will hear it all day. Um, I just We're editing this out so it looks like you snubbed the Pacers, by the way. Dan, take care right, of that. Right, because I, uh, I will never hear it. And by the way, I, I love the Pacers organization. No, all of this Veronica is being edited people. out. It doesn't matter. You can say whatever you want. It's not your podcast. You snubbed the Pacers. Um, uh, Miami, you've heard it. Like, oh, you know, they're the military. They were well-suited for the bubble. All the things that undid some of these extra other teams, Miami was, was well-built to withstand. I think Miami's just freaking good. And you want to, yeah, maybe they were well-suited to the bubble. Nothing I saw in the bubble other than Goran Dragic's play, uh, let's assume he's 80 to 90% of what he was in the bubble, nothing struck me as they can't carry that over. into the, the way they play, the style, the guys who were doing it, yeah, Jimmy Butler had a couple outrageous games, but I think Miami's legit and a legit threat to win the East. Dismiss mm-hmm. them at your peril. Brooklyn... We all have to see Durant, right? Like other players who have played with Durant this summer are like, holy smokes, he looks incredible. He looks athletic. He looks incredible in ways that matter given the injury he's coming off of. We'll see. If he's like that, I love Brooklyn. Um, Milwaukee's Milwaukee. I talked about them. Philly got better. And Toronto, I'm keeping in the first tier because I just think if that backcourt is healthy, um, to have two guards that skilled and that tough with that much shooting ability and Anunobi improving and Siakam finding his game after the bubble, I just don't think that team will drop that far in the regular season. Those guards are so good that I, I have faith in them. Then that's the end of my first tier. I have Indiana in its own tier as like, will they implode? Will they make trades? I don't even know. And I think Atlanta is closer to them than they are to the group below them. To me, Atlanta has accumulated enough talent that if they finish worse than eighth, it is a disappointment. Atlanta is should be the big favorite, I think, for the number eight seed with a shot if a couple of things go wrong above them and a couple of things go right for them to chase seven. Doesn't get you out of the playing tournament. I'd be a little surprised if they could chase six. It would take some real stuff going wrong. And then I actually think if I had to pick the three most threatening teams behind them, I would pick Orlando just because of inertia. They should change their name to the Orlando Inertia for this year. They already have a singular name anyway. So they should, for one year, they should be called the Orlando Inertia. How much noise did we hear about, they've reached the end of the road, it's time to pivot. Like, did they do Did it, Did they do anything? I don't even know what they did. They let DJ Augustine go. By the way, that's a big loss for them. Isaac is a huge loss for them. I think Atlanta's better than Orlando. 
I think Atlanta's mm-hmm. better than Chicago. Chicago will get a big coaching bump. Um, and I think just organizing that team in the correct way is worth a lot, a lot of wins. I think they're dangerous to the Hawks. The one team you didn't mention, I have them above Charlotte and and others. I think the Wizards have the chance to be frisky. If they can find any defensive competency, I don't know if they're going to start Robin Lopez. Maybe that helps. Obviously, the John Wall thing is a huge wild card in every possible way. They have a lot of shooting. They have a decent amount of talent. They have improving talent in Troy Young and Hachimura. Um, I think that team has a chance to be dangerous. I think Atlanta's better than them, but that's the team I look at in the rear view. I think I might even like them better than Orlando, just because you never know with a team like Orlando. Missing Isaac, so that means Al Farouk Aminu is a huge part of their team now. Um, the Augustine loss was big. Like Their bench unit with Augustine and MCW as the backup guards was killing teams, and Augustine was a big part of that. You know, Maybe Fultz makes another leap. I'm kind of a Fultz skeptic compared to the Magic anyway. I just don't... <sighs> I just wonder if some of the veterans on that team feel the end of the roadness of it. Feel like, feel like the demoralization of, ugh, we kind of figured out what we are. We're not getting any better. This, that, and the other thing. I think the Hawks are good. I think that that's my tears. Did any did anything I just said strike you as interesting? You mentioned Washington. Are you a, are you a whiz skeptic? Yeah. I mean, so I'm I'm pricing out John Wall. Um, I I do. I, all right. So best case scenario. To me, they're ranked 21st defensively. Okay, so w- what do you get from there? And that, that's just the thing. By the way, I I, mean, I love Bradley Beal. I think Brown's interesting. Um, you know, obviously, Bertans can shoot the lights out. Lopez should stabilize at least something. But, you know, I just, I just don't know that there is depth and de- defense there enough to get them to a place where we're talking about them. Hey, we might be talking about them at 10th. I mean, hell, last season they finished, what, 9th? Or, or tenth, so I, I even if they maintain, they're they're in that conversation. Um, but I, I just okay I, to me at, at the very basic level when I'm trying to appraise a team, it's sort of like where do I think where their offensive def- efficiency range is in terms of ranking? Where's their defensive def- defensive efficiency ranking? And with them, I'm sort of I'm looking at the crystal ball and I see a twenty two. You know, at best, I, I just think. And, it's a, and then you got to be like I think they're sibs. I, I actually think they're sibs. You got to be like ninth offensively, and they've actually right. fell to sixteenth. Uh, but obviously, the the bubble killed them playing without Beal and Bertans. You know, it's it their their numbers. At one point, they were like the number two offense in the league for a little while. I just think Thomas Bryant's getting better. Um, they have, they have like you could argue they have more depth than Philadelphia. Philadelphia's bench worries me a little bit. I think their starting five is going to be really strong, assuming they start Green and Curry around the three big salaried players, the three big stars that they have. Um, but but I look, I the bottom line is Atlanta should make the playoffs and and yes they're going to they're going to have two veteran players playing let's say 60 minutes a game between them that would otherwise go to their young players and yeah that compromises development i guess a little bit it certainly compromises your cap situation going forward but i don't think any compromise they have made in either realm player development or cap management really like bothers me all that much yeah. and i think they're going to be a legitimately good team uh, the, and and by the way like if things click kind of a fun first round playoff opponent if they get out of the play in tournament oh I, I think in terms of your you, and we'll see your rankings of you know fun to watch 
they're going to be top 10. I mean, I, this is Bogdan is just electric. He is so much. I watch a, a ridiculous amount of Sacramento Kings basketball for someone who shouldn't watch it. My condolences. Like, no, but it's, it, you know, last year was less uh, fulfilling than the previous season or two. But I mean, he's just fun. I mean, there's certain guys who just love the showmanship and the dramatic flair of hitting a big shot. And that guy just enjoys it. He wants to be the most theatrical player on the floor for better and worse. Sometimes it's for worse, but I, you know, Trey fits into that category and, you know, uh, Collins is this sort of, uh, Collins is kind of freakish and, and on good nights. I like John Collins. I I understand that, you know, the the idea that is he trapped between positions on defense is going to be a thing that dogs him throughout his career. And maybe that ends up being the case. You know, defensively, I think he improved his effort a little bit last year. And he was pretty open about improving his effort and focus was step one for him. He was pretty open about, I hadn't I hadn't really dug in enough on defense before. I thought he got a little better. Intuitively, I, I don't think the rhythms of defense come to him as easily as you'd like. But offensively, he's a freaking monster. 40% from yeah. three. And I believe his numbers were pretty even corner versus above the break, longer threes, got better in the post last year, which I really think, I just still think every big man, if you're going to play in the playoffs, you just have to be able to do something when they switch a guard onto you. Like you just, it's still important. Like playoff defenses are too good and they take away too much stuff that if you're a seven footer or six ten guy who's skilled and you just can't do anything uh, I, I just think, I still think you had, as much as the post-up is out of style, and he got better at that. Like, to me, that's how, you know, that's where the, the league at large watched Miles Turner be able to do nothing against Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero in the post. It was like, ooh, that's kind of a, it's kind of a problem. So I, I'm still in on John Collins. I understand the, the. I understand the question marks, but the guy is prodigiously talented on offense. Uh, offense, and again, I mean, look, facing up one dribble. He's a great threat. I mean, there's a lot he can do to pressure defenses. And, I, you know, I love him. Uh, it is, though, I, I think at some point there are defensive liabilities. I mean, that's that's going to be, as this team grows, that's always going to be sort of the great torment for whether, you know, for, for the coaching staff, which is, you know, how do we balance these liabilities? You know, can we find, you know, we'll be saying things like name one guy, you know, how many guys in the Hawks can we say in earnest are, above average both offensively and defensively and I think there's just going to be a lot of trade-offs on that team Hunter is just I think a potential all NBA defender he just has no offensive feel yet he's smart right like like reddish to me will be the answer to that question Collins will probably always be a negative so we'll constantly be having that conversation where you know who do you want on the floor you know in the early career Tomasefalosha or Harden when Harden was like still young and, and coming off the bench right like that where, what what do you substitute? We'll see a lot of offensive defense, not just in the last five minutes, but matchup to matchup. But hey, who cares? Um, now, the one person who cares, I mean, I think is, uh, you know, management and coach, coaching staff are both on the line. Like they need to perform this year, the team, you know, barring extenuating circumstances of the entire team falls victim to, you know, uh, COVID, you know, there are always extenuating circumstances. But I do think there is an imperative in Atlanta. It's time. It's time you do this. We've given you material support. You know, we're not a cheapo team. Go do this. You've had a blank check, essentially. And by the way, I think they will. And and that's the good news. And I, I, I do think they will. They're also low-key, um, almost certainly out of future first-round picks. They, they picked up a lot of picks in salary dumps over the years, 
which I think was smart. In some cases, I think the bang for the buck wasn't ideal. Like they took on a lot of money for a middling first or a 30th pick in one case. But it's like, fine, those aren't aren't perfect. But, you know, they traded one of the extra firsts for um, Capella. That first went on quite a journey, by the way. In one year, that first round pick went from the Nets to the Hawks in the Allen Crabb salary dump that the Nets used to open up uh, the Kyrie KD space. The Hawks to the Wolves in the three in the like 17 team trade for Capella. Uh, and then the Wolves to the Thunder uh, in the Rubio deal, and it became the mystery man Pokashevsky, who's going to the Thunder now. Um, they traded two firsts and a second um, to get DeAndre Hunter, which is probably one thing about about the Travis Schlenk regime. Like he he's not afraid to to sort of lose the asset valuation part of a trade if it's something he really wants to do. So that was one where they probably by the numbers overpaid 8, 17, and 35, I think went to New Orleans to move up and get Hunter. But he wanted DeAndre Hunter. We'll see how it works out. The one future first they still have coming to them is the first they got for taking on Carmelo Anthony's salary. And they, that deal in retrospect, they gave up Schroeder um, and took on Carmelo's $27 million expiring and got a first-round pick that Oklahoma City just fiendish. Sam Presti's just fiendish. It's lottery-protected. It's lottery-protected in one year, 2022. I got news for you. Oklahoma City's going to be in the lottery in 2022. You're not getting that pick. And it doesn't get any... It does. It's And after that, it's two second-round picks. You get one shot at it. Sam Presti pioneered this concept in the Jeremy Grant trade. It's just fiendish. And so it's not going to be a future first. It could be two. It could be two future seconds. So they they've used up all of their picks on players and trades and stuff. So this is, you know, this is the sort of team going forward. I think it's a good, exciting team, and with proper development from their young players in two, three years, when Gallinari is cycling out and Bogdanovich is, you know, maybe the veteran that you decide to keep or whatever he is, like they could be a really good team. You know, it, it hasn't it, like it hasn't been. Again, the Luca thing hovers over it. Um, some of those trades again were a little, the bang for the buck wasn't great, but like if those young wings develop, um, this could be a really interesting team. You know, you, you mentioned something really interesting about Schlenk as a builder, right? Like I think there are a lot of GMs and, and I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer to this. Let's accumulate talent. I don't really particularly care about the profile of that talent. Yes. There are players I like, there are players I don't like based on, on scouting and insight, Schlenk is a guy who wants a particular kind of player. He imagines a specific composition, right? Like Hunter was very much an expression of that. Hey, we have Trey. Harder at the time was still, you know, I think it was central to their plans, Collins. And we need a big spidery wing stopper. We'll figure out where he is um, offensively. And that's what we have development for. But, you know, he imagines sort of, okay, this is a future lineup. And each of these guys' services a function schematically in that lineup. Whereas there are other GMs who are just like, hey, look, get the talent. We'll worry about composition later. You know, all of these guys are mysteries. Um, th- th- there is no, th- this is more of a dark art than a science. And, uh, it, you know, it's been an interesting uh, process, right? Because he's going to, he missed on some and, and you know, he, he, he also managed the spreadsheet very well and then hit on some. I mean, Collins is just a great pick. Uh, so he, he's an interesting builder. Yeah, and I think that race it, for seven, six, eight, nine, whatever it is, is going to be interesting. And you know, I just want to talk briefly again about Chicago because uh, I do think they are. This is Billy Donovan's first year. 
I still worry a little bit about the total playmaking they have there. Like Zach Levine is a lead playmaker, isn't going to work. Zach Levine's a tremendous offensive player. Just I, I don't want him to be my lead pick and roll guy anymore. Uh, Kobe White took some of that mantle toward the end of last season. You know, TBD on that. Sadoransky is just kind of eh. Um, but I do think Markinen and Carter will have a bounce back year. People seem to love this Pat Williams guy they drafted at four. I think they're, if they can get anything out of Otto Porter and Thad Young, I, I think they have a chance to be sneaky dangerous at the bottom of the playoff race. But the Hawks, I, I do think, walk in as favorites to get one of the top two seeds in the play-in tournament. I can't believe the play-in tournament is going to become a thing. Oh, I love so the fun. I love the play-in tournament. Um, yeah, I, I think you and I have the same reservations, and the note I have here is sort of like shot creation for the Bulls, right? Like I, I just am suspicious of any team where you know where, where Zach Levine is, is sort of the is is the catalyst there, right? Like because you know I don't, I don't think White is there yet, and I, I like White. I, I I like White. You know, oh, I mean, I feel badly about Porter. It's it was the hip, it was the foot. It's I, I don't even think it's. I mean, it, no fault of his, and some guys just get unlucky. I mean, I feel like it was like Gary Harris for a year or two, right? Like, but I just want to see Markin and Carter on the floor together, and um, I mean, in, in a real offensive system, in a real, in a offensive, real system. offensive system that understands where to get those shots and when to get those shots for those guys, you know, the right shot in the right spot. I just, where is the pure shot creation? You know, Temple will stabilize them off the bench. They're, they'll tread water in their second unit, um, particularly if Young is, is sort of back there. They'll, they'll be able to do something. I mean, I, I think you and I both have an appreciation for Sadoransky, but I, I just like, where is the shot creation coming from? Like, like who is going to burst off a pick and roll? Well, this is, this I, I is my, it's yeah. the same reservation I have about Fultz, where like Fultz is super skilled. Um, Sadoransky is super skilled. They're, they're both smart players. Fultz has great vision. They're just as like an upper bound that's not all that high when the defense can go under every single pick against you and not be afraid to do it. And like, that's my Fultz skepticism. Like, yeah, I think he maximized and he shot like 46% or something on mid-range jumpers last year. He shot 77 or something from the line, which is a huge, which is a great sign. But uh, those 46% on mid-range jumpers, like a Dirk 46% and a Fultz 46% are wildly different things. Those are conceded, wide open, red carpet, take it, we don't care uh, jumpers. And, and I just, it, it's it's the same thing with Sadoransky. Like he's a better shooter than Markel and has had some good three-point shooting seasons, but no one is afraid of ducking under his, his screens. And that just puts, it's just so hard to generate you know, it's so hard to compromise the defense when that happens. Anyway, so we're both optimistic. Right, and, that's about yeah, and that's probably for, exactly what you just said. Is probably why I'm a little higher on Charlotte than you are. Like, these are flawed players. It's not a perfect, compositionally a perfect uh, sort of roster. But wow, you know, Devontae Graham can get a shot. Gordon Hayward can get a shot. Terry Rozier can kind of get a shot. Like, we'll see about LaMelo. Um I don't think Bridges is terrible. No, I think so Washington and Bridges of, are pretty good. It's just their yeah, depth. I, I like Pete Washington a lot. Yeah. Their depth behind hate, their depth at the four and five worry me a little bit. Um, as good as PJ Washington was last year, the depth behind them worries me a little bit. Their depth in general worries me. And like you know that they're gonna turn over a lot of the offense to LaMelo, no matter no matter the veterans they have around them and just rookie point guards tend to be really, really bad. But I agree with you, there is the skeleton of an interesting team. And I also agree with you that James Borrego is a good coach who will squeeze every W out of that team. 
that they can get. So I, I, maybe I should elevate them into that Washington Chicago tier, but we both agree on the Hawks. I think the Hawks, you know, I, I think they had a good off season. Is it an a plus? Is it, no, but it's hard to get an A plus when you're in a, a market that's not one of the marquee ones and you're trying to win now. I like what they did. One day it will be, Zach Lowe. Atlanta, Georgia will be a marquee market at some point. Um, it will go back to the days of the chiclet seats at the Omni um, that I grew up in. It is just, uh, I'm so ready for the Hawks to matter um, again. I mean, it was this beautiful fleeting moment during the Budenholzer 60 win uh, kind of period. But, you know, that was an older team and it wasn't, you didn't see it in the distance. You just and and they got the decent moment. with the exception of, you know, I think they, they, they missed a chance to trade Millsap and they still, the Horford yeah, Dwight Howard Horford, thing yeah. didn't work out, but like they got good value for Teague. They got good value for Corver, although that's another first that turned into multiple seconds uh, that New Orleans now owns. Um, they, but I thought they, you know, hard to rebuild from a team like that without bottoming out. I thought they, they got okay value for the most part. But anyway, so we will have to have you back on. I was going to say, as the season approaches, the season is approaching. <laughs> Players are coming back to camp tomorrow. And they're Wednesday? Starting, they're, as the season is approaching, we will do our annual Five Most Confusing Teams uh, podcast. I think this is going to be a fun year for that particular podcast, given the short turnaround and the the level of player movement that just happened all at once. I think that'll be fun. Kevin Arnovitz, it's good to hear your voice again. Stay safe out there. Enjoy uh, Howard, uh, Howard the Golden Retriever. I hope he doesn't tear up your house, my friend. We are prepared. Thanks for having me. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, Birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish, but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. For the ones who get it done! Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. All right, now I'm really excited. Let's bring on a first-time guest who just wrote one of the best feature stories on the NBA in a long time uh, from Turner Bleacher Report, host of Take It There with Taylor Rooks. It's Taylor Rooks. How are you? <laughs> I am doing amazing. Just happy to be here. Happy to be, you know, not in a bubble anymore and <laughs> enjoying my time in New York. Well, that's the story. The story is, and I've been waiting for someone to write this story super well, and you were in the bubble for a long time. We can talk about that. And it, the story ran in GQ last week. It's, first of all, writing in GQ, that's just cool. Like it's a oh, cool... I was super pumped. Yeah, I was super pumped. When, when it happened, I'm like, oh my gosh, are you serious? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a byline in that magazine. I definitely had a you know a little minor freak out session. And then I was like, all right, how am I going to get this done? So, But it was really cool to be in there. And I now have like a hard print copy um, of the George Clooney cover, which is also very cool. And to, to flip and see it in there was, was definitely a highlight of my career. Yeah, George Clooney is a, is a handsome man. I feel yeah. comfortable. <laughs> Uh, the story is called The Most Magical Place on Earth Inside the Great NBA Bubble Experiment by Taylor Rooks. And I, I just wanted to say, 
it's rare to find a story that has the level of reporting that this story has. Like you have, there are just too many amazing details in this story about the, the, the funky, fun, moving, heartbreaking intricacies of living in that bubble for both you and the players. There, there are just too many to even come close to mentioning on this podcast. That combined with the humanity of it, um, the humanity of getting these guys to talk about their support systems and how important it was for them to have those support systems, mm-hmm. your personal support system, the way you changed the way you kind of interacted with some players to ask them about George Floyd and Jacob Blake, just the humanity, the combination of humanity and deep reporting is I think very, very rare. And you pulled it off in one piece. It was really just a joy to read. And I just first congratulations. It's a great story. Thank you so much. You know, it's it's so funny because when I was writing it, every time I would do the interview, I would say to the, the player or the coach or the GM, whatever, I'd say, you know what? I really want this story to be told through anecdotes. I want the story to be told through experience and things that happen to you. So as detailed as you can be, even if it feels very small to you, like that's the stuff that will really make the story. And you know, I think sometimes when you're writing, you you want to find that one thing that like nobody knows and it's going to be like the bombshell part of your story. But for me, I think it was more like these little things that nobody knew. Like there wasn't just this grandiose thing like this person almost went to this team and that's what happened in the bubble. No, it was like what people were doing when they hung out and the conversations that they had. Um, And so I just kind of tried to follow that path um, as I did it. Let me give a couple of 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 good examples um, just to whet people's appetite. Number one, I was absolutely rolling at the at the idea that Masai Ujiri was staying one floor above Kawhi Leonard, exactly <laughs> yeah. one floor above him, and yeah. waking Kawhi Leonard up um, from his from his like, from his sleep, I guess, by going on Peloton at five in the morning. So and, yeah. and it, it, so when you find like I did, you find I assume you found that out from Masai because Kawhi doesn't yes. talk. So when you find that, <laughs> do you say? Hey, can I use that or that's so cuz certainly a light bulb goes off in your head like, "Oh, that's a good totally. one." Totally. So, this is the the thing with that story. That was one that I would try to ask every person. I would say, "Tell me the best story from the bubble that nobody knows." That was a question that I asked everybody at the end of each interview. And Masai goes, "Hmm, like I'm going to I'm going to think on it. I got to really think on it." He's like, "Can I get back to you?" I'm like, "Sure, absolutely." So then like the next day I text him, I'm like, hey, have you thought about that story? And he says, you know, well, there's this thing that happened with Kawhi. And then he tells me the story. So it's like, and that's an example of like people not always realizing why something will be so good. But yeah, he said that I guess Kawhi asked Kyle Lowry who was staying in that room because every day that person was waking him up. So that's when Kawhi sent the text. So that's how that one came about. And then, of course, they talk trash about how when the Raptors and Clippers play in the finals, besides going to screw up Kawhi's sleep, have random workouts all through the night. (laughs) Yes, and then Kawhi says, don't make me call the NBA on you and get you kicked out the bubble. So (laughs) it was a really nice story. (laughs) So, so, and another, another one that I'll highlight for people, we'll get to the serious ones later, but I just loved... Um, the Rockets and the Blazers, mm-hmm. rival teams with Damian Lillard and Russell Westbrook, who have a history now, sitting poolside, everybody watching on their iPads a Mavericks-Clippers playoff yeah. game, but realizing 
that one of the team's feeds was like three seconds ahead of the other team so that they would start reacting to stuff and the other team would be like, wait, what's it? And, and so like, and then they all decided, let's just forget that and watch it all together. Yes. Uh, first of all, I had a college buddy who would do that to me all the time. Like I, I'm old. I graduated college in 1999. We'd be watching basketball games together over the phone and his feed would be like three seconds ahead of mine. And he would be like, oh my God, he made a half court shot. And if he didn't yeah. make a half court shot, he would just be toying with me. That's just, that's just such a great detail that I can visualize. And it's so, it will probably maybe never happen again. Like it's just, it's, it seems mundane. It probably seemed mundane to the players, but as soon as I read Mm -hmm. it, I was like, that's an Orlando thing. I'm so glad I know that. Totally. Because one thing that was happening in the bubble was there was so much just like fellowship and congregating, like with different players on different teams. And a lot of it would happen at the bar or at the pool. Um, so I think I thought it was really important to just kind of let people know like the role that the pool played. I know in the Grandestino, everybody would call that pool Cabo because it kind of looked like it had a pyramid and it was really fancy over there. And there would always be players just meeting there to just hang out, even if they didn't get in. It was just, they would get drinks and they'd hang out at the pool. And then it was like, there was this other world at the other hotels and this other pool. And that's where the Rockets and the Blazers were, where they were watching that game together. So I just feel like there was different places in the bubble that were also characters, you know, and the pool was one of them. So it was it was nice to add that in there. So when you got there, did you know from the beginning, I want to write a story like this and begin compiling stuff right away? Did you take notes yourself and like, you yeah. know, did you keep a journal or did was this something that like halfway through you're like, wow, I've heard a lot of fun stuff. Let me make something out of this. Like, how did it start? Yeah. So I definitely didn't know going in, I was going to write a piece for GQ. Um, but I did say to myself going in that when I would remember at every night, I wanted to write exactly what happened so I didn't forget. Because there is such a small amount of people that were in that bubble and such a small amount of people that can tell others what it was like. So in years from now, when there's that documentary or that movie or that book, whatever, you can only ask so many people about the experience. So. I wanted to be as prepared as possible for when that time inevitably came. So I would try to remember to write what happened. I was vlogging for Bleacher Report, which was really cool because I just have so much footage um, of different things, uh, which will help jog my memory as well. But I would just hear in passing so many little tidbits and see who guys were hanging out with and know that there was some type of story there. And one day, literally it was maybe, maybe three weeks before I had to leave the bubble. Uh, GQ reached out and was like, we have really enjoyed the reporting that you have been doing in Orlando. We're doing this minute of the year issue. We want to do something on the bubble. Would you be down to write it? Um, keep in mind, I, though, I started off as a writer. I was writing when I was in college, but I haven't written something in so long. Definitely not something that was 5,000 words. So <laughs> once they asked me, I really started just trying to figure out what I felt like that story looked like, but more importantly, what I thought that story felt like. Um, and so that was just in my mind for for the rest of the weeks. But uh, yeah, I did not go in knowing that I would be writing this story. Well, it's a beautiful story and it's structured beautifully. We'll talk about the way it ends later at the at the end because the the kicker is just absolutely um, <laughs> pitch perfect. Now, on a lighthearted note, mm-hmm. um, you you have now forever tainted my experience of watching one player because of this story. When I go to a game and this player is playing, 
Uh-huh. I'm going to be focusing on him at the beginning of before the game. And I, and I will never, ever, George. ever. George Hill, you guessed it right away. Your story <laughs> revealed to me. That, and this is forever. I'm like, if yeah. you, this is going to be years of my life going to now. I don't even know what team he plays for. The Thunder now. <laughs> At six minutes before tip off, George Hill will leave the layup line and go um, uh, relieve himself in the He'll bathroom as He'll a ritual poop. before every game. <laughs> so this means I'm going to be watching the freaking layup line every game. <laughs> To make sure that I see George Hill. And if he doesn't do it, I'm going to be like, uh-oh, he's going to have a bad game. Yeah. So, like, it, you mix these little lighthearted things. So when you hear yeah. that, are you like, are you sure you want me to print that? I mean, George is pretty, like, pretty candid No, I dude. was like, I have to print this. So, obviously, when he had missed the anthem, everyone was like, hey, why did you miss the anthem? There was all these theories. And he said, well, I missed the anthem because I was taking it. And when I heard him say that, I'm like, all right, there's some there's some follow-ups here. Like, he was taking this. <laughs> is he always taking this? So when I knew I was going to interview him for the story, I'm like, what we need to talk about above all else is this routine. And I'm telling you, there is a story to be told about different player routines because he does it. I've talked to Channing Fry about it. And he said that when he played, he could not play unless he took a big dump before the game. And then it was a lot of Cavaliers that did it. A lot of players feel like they have to poop before the games. It's like makes them lighter. They move better. Like I'm telling you, there is something there in that story. People have very specific routines. Um, so you're telling me, how to you're, telling, you're telling me Channing Fry does this. Yep. A lot of the Cavaliers did it. So the 2016 Cavaliers rally from a 3-1 deficit to win the title. <laughs> and you hear all these stories about how Channing Frye really changed the team's culture in the midseason trade. They have this puzzle where after every game they have this ritual where they're putting a puzzle piece into the puzzle. <laughs> and really all it comes down to was they somehow do. they all discovered we all need to go to the bathroom before the game. This is why they won the championship. Yes, everyone me. had to poop. Yes, yeah. Channing was like, I would poop before every game. But it was like, he was like, it's a thing everybody does. Everybody poops before they go out. And that was something that was news to me. And I definitely needed to delve into that a little more. So This actually, I think, I think, um, I think personally that I think George Hill is like 2% better as a player now that I know this. Like this yes. has improved my view of George Hill as a player. Um <laughs> Let's talk about um, that meeting after the Bucks went on strike, mm-hmm. and and then it triggered strikes all around sports. They have the players only, well, it's players and coaches, and then it became players only meeting. Yeah, I thought I knew everything about that meeting, both on the record and off the record. I was texting yeah. people, calling people, and I knew that John Lucas had given a speech that had stirred emotion in a lot of people there. You taught me months later now something about that speech that I didn't know that really kind of hit me in the gut a little bit when I read it. Can you tell people what what that was? Yeah, yeah. So um, both CJ McCollum and Carmelo Anthony are ones who really pointed to the speech as an important part of the meeting where I guess John Lucas started talking about what the bubble does to players mentally and essentially said that so much of what there is to do is just drink and eventually people will become alcoholics. And he also talked about his struggle with alcoholism in that speech. Um, 
And it was something that I think really hit home for a lot of people. CJ said everybody stood up, gave him a standing ovation, clapped, because they all just really understood that there was only so much that you could do in this bubble. And now this isn't what any of the players said. This is something that I always thought about is just based on pure numbers, right? Pure statistics of people. There is somebody who struggles with some type of addiction that was in that bubble, who, whatever it is, like you don't know what it is, but there's some type of addiction that somebody has in that bubble and they wouldn't be able to, you know, appease that there. And I wonder how many people really did struggle with whatever that thing was and not having it. Um, and whether that, I guess, maybe helped them in any way. But I just, I think that the John Lucas speech really did hit home for a lot of people. Well, you also just hear people talk about it in regular, non-NBA bubble life that, yeah. you know, the pandemic is like people are stuck at home. It's stressful. It's stressful financially. It's stressful, you know, emotionally. It The virus has touched, if not someone's immediate family, certainly one level away. And yeah. you hear people joke, like I have friends who are joke, yeah, like I'm up to a couple of glasses of wine every night now. You know, the pandemic's going to turn yeah, me into a but... <laughs> and the pandemic's going to turn me into an alcoholic before you know it. And you laugh because we all laugh. We all deal with it. But it's like, actually... <laughs> It might actually be, it might actually yeah. be a real concern. That's how you form habits. I mean, that that really is, you know, how these things I feel like build up and happen. And I I wanted to also balance because you know in the story I talk a lot about how you know wine and, and drinks served as fellowship. I thought it was really important to also highlight the other side of what that stuff could lead to as well. So uh, yeah, John's John's moment was big for a lot of people. You also. Um you found a way, and this was challenging for, uh, I think, a lot of reporters is, you know, players wanted to talk about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake. They didn't want to talk about basketball a lot. And so you would have these press conferences where they would announce, I'm not taking any basketball questions, or they would answer every question by saying, we want justice for Breonna Taylor. And that was tough for a lot of reporters, I think, to navigate. And you navigated it by just going just head on. Tell me what you feel, how are you doing today in the wake of all this news? And I think the first moment that it landed on people's radar in a big way was when Jonathan Isaac stood for the national anthem and did not wear the Black Lives Matter t-shirt. And you asked him, I don't want to put, I don't want to misquote you, but you asked him something to the effect of like, do you think that Black Lives Matter or something, something to mm -hmm. that nature, right? So remind me what the question was. And then the reaction was pretty explosive, but like, it yeah. was a very direct question that got a direct answer from him. Right. And that's exactly what I, I wanted to ask him a direct question so that he could give a direct answer. And I felt like there was this one kind of corner of the internet that wasn't really understanding the context of why I asked him that question. Um, I want to first say, and I feel like I've been very open about this, you should be able to do whatever you want for the anthem. Like if you want to kneel, if you want to stand, like literally do whatever you want. Like people shouldn't police what someone does for the anthem. Um, so in that situation, Jonathan Isaacs was standing for the anthem, but he also wasn't wearing the Black Lives Matter shirt, where there was tons of people stood for the anthem, but they had also worn the Black Lives Matter shirt, which to me signaled they were saying, you know, I don't want to kneel, but I'm saying that I support this movement, right? You know, whether it was Popovich or a Hammond or Myers Leonard, they stood, but they wore the shirt. So when he was standing, but also not wearing the shirt, I think there was confusion as to like, okay, so wait, I know you want to stand, but are you also not a, like going with the movement, right? And so 
I know that things can be lost in translation. I know that doing that doesn't necessarily mean that. So when I asked him the question, I honestly just wanted him to be able to say why he didn't wear the shirt. And was it because you don't necessarily believe in that Black Lives Matter movement? And he said he did, and that was that. You know, like there was no, like obviously, why would I want him to say no? You know what I mean? Like that's that isn't at all what I was trying to elicit. I really just wanted him to be able to explain himself. Um, and why he did, because that's what everybody was talking about on the internet, was why was he not wearing the shirt? So then he answered and I asked him and I said, sorry, I just wanna ask a follow-up question. I, I really am just like trying to understand this isn't in any like way to attack. I just wanna get it, I, I said that. I was like, can you explain um, the role that religion plays in terms of you know fighting for racial equality and, and Jonathan justice. Isaac is is an ordained minister for context. yes yes and in his answer about the Black Lives Matter movement he referenced religion as why he didn't so I think the natural follow up to that is can you just explain that connection so I asked him that so yeah there was definitely a like I said a corner of the internet that was not happy with that question but I'm I wasn't really looking for anybody to be happy or unhappy I just wanted to ask the question. That's what everybody online was thinking. And so I just wanted to ask. I mean, I kind of got into the stick because they asked me to go first. So <laughs> I asked the first question. <laughs> hey, look, but, uh, it, yeah. it's more interesting than, you know, than, than how did you think you played today or how was your right. rebounding today or and that, whatever. And that was something in the bubble that um, I really enjoyed and took some adjusting to is, you know, th these were scrum environments. You know, somebody was up there, it was a bunch of reporters, you're asking your question, but I'm used to doing one-on-one -on -one interviews. Like I, I don't always go to the locker room and ask the question. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna ask all of these questions the same way I would ask it was just us. Like I didn't wanna adapt my questions to like that scrum environment. I didn't wanna say, you know, like, how'd you feel during this game or, you know, what was the message that like, I wanted to ask the questions that I would have asked any other time. And I guess, you know, some people saw that one a, a way different than I did. Well, and, and in the story, you you talk about how the, the day after the Jacob Blake shooting, you could tell Fred Van Vliet was just kind of shaken up and, you know, he's getting basketball questions and you just ask him, hey, you seem you seem you know, a little shaken up or whatever. How are you doing? And you, you yeah. got a real answer from him. And I think fans were interested in the answers to those questions and remain I interested in the answers to those non-basketball questions. You also, in the story, get into the dynamic. And again, it's a very touchy subject of, of that player's meeting. Mm -hmm. You get into the dynamic that emerged between players who were concerned about the financial ramifications of sitting out the rest of the season yeah. versus those who were, were less concerned. And it's an awkward thing to bring up because some players make $30 million a year and some players make a million dollars a year, which yeah. is a lot of money, which is a lot of money, but it's also, you know, it's, it's not 30. And so, and you have this amazing quote from George Hill talking about, you know, remembering that meeting and saying, well, what, what does money matter to you if you don't have your humanity or if you, if you're mm -hmm. and that, that's another gut punch and to, and to, to have that kind of story and, uh, the other George Hill story in the same magazine feature is an, <laughs> yes. is an unusual thing. The one other one I wanted to hit on is clearly you talked to Masai Ujiri a lot. Yeah, And I, I wonder if you could just sort of relate to people what he told you about um, watching and then sharing the video of the police officer in Oakland or whatever whatever his title was, yeah. shoving him away from the court uh, and, and all that. Because I, I had not heard him really talk about that kind of stuff very much. Can you just sort of say what he said? 
For sure. I mean, well, first, I mean, he tells me that he first, you know, was alerted about this video going to be coming out and seeing the video when he was like on the bus. I can't re remember if it was to or from a game, but he saw on the bus, watched it in his room, told his wife. He then knew that the players were going to see it, but he wanted to be the one to show them. So he showed them. He said that Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet were just so upset um, when they saw the video. And those were, you know, two of the guys that really just like came up to him and expressed how angry they were. He also said he showed Doc Rivers and Doc Rivers was just so angry. He started saying, this isn't right. People need to see this, this isn't right. And they had this like moment where Doc was just like trying to be there for him. It was just really, you know, shook by seeing that and being like, they tried to say that you did something that you did not. He just kept saying, everybody needs to see this. Everybody needs to see this. Um, and yeah, I think Masai, just so much happened to Masai in the bubble. <laughs> you know, I just, to have to go through that on the backdrop of everything that America is going through and deal with it when you're in this secluded space, like I think was a lot, but Masai just added so much to the story because of what we saw happen to him at that championship. He's in a lot of ways like the embodiment right of what we have all been fighting for um in the bubble and everywhere else so he was he was a crucial part to, and you just you spirit. describe him weeping showing this yeah. video to to his family to some mm -hmm. of his players like weeping openly and it's like you know you just don't see that side of of a powerful president team president you know yeah he has, su he has such sort of a cocksure personality mm -hmm. he's very confident and outgoing you just don't I just don't. I I'm trying to picture what that looks like in my head. Yeah. And I, it, it's it's a hard image to to get. And that's why you know when I stand there that I remember distinctly sitting outside of the Raptors practice and Masai just walking up, so unprompted and just being like, "We should have never come to the bubble." And it was like, and that was the same day as Fred. Right? It was when everybody was thinking about Jacob Blake, and I just remember being like, "This." is hitting Masai differently because of, you know, obviously what, what he went through as well. So Masai was super emotional and open and candid about everything that he felt. He told me this, you know, this, this whole thing about how he felt when he watched the George Floyd video and the Jacob Blake video. And he said that, you know, so much of the focus that we are putting on change is about racism. And yes, that is absolutely the problem. So much of the problem really is humanity. He was like, that's a lack of humanity to put your knee on someone's neck for that long. Like what we should be talking about is what type of person would do that. And so, I mean, I probably talked to Masai for, in total, because I did two interviews with him, I probably talked to him for two hours. Um, and he was great. Like such, uh, probably the most valuable, most valuable interview. Which is funny because I wouldn't say that I almost didn't interview him, but I was like, he wasn't, I wasn't thinking he was going to play the role that he did sure. in it. You know what I mean? Like when you're thinking about who you want to talk to, like Masai was on there, but I, mainly because I wanted him to talk about, you know, that the video, but he lent so many other things, whether it was the DeMar DeRozan story or the Kawhi story, like all of that was so important. And so I think one thing that I learned from writing this was you should always do the interview. If you don't use anything from it, you don't use anything from it, but you should always at least do it and see where, where it takes you because that's absolutely what happened with Masai. 
Well, I don't want to spoil any more of it. There is a Maasai, you just hinted at it, there is a Maasai reunion story that is also sort of worth the price of admission uh, on its own. There's a there's a uh, Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul story in it that is, that is a really fun detail. And there's also, I mean, a lot of the story is about the players being there for each other, like John Morant misses his his daughter's first words, and mm-hmm. and you know he and, and Chris Paul references a, a saying about you know I have to remind myself check on my strong friends, not just my my fragile friends, but the strongest ones because yeah. they they may need help and I may not think that. I thought that was very moving. So please, everybody, read the story. I'm not spoiling any any more of it for you. Go <laughs> read it, Taylor. What's the best? story that is on the cutting room floor what's your favorite story that you couldn't squeeze in or whatever well i want to start off by saying my first draft was like eight thousand words (laughs) and it had to become like it ended up being i think like 5400 or something like that so a lot was taken out um i would say it's more nuggets than it is stories like when i spoke to danny green obviously you see in the story he referenced you know the night where he missed the shot and everybody was killing him online um there was a tweet from Devonte Adams that had gone viral that night about Danny Green. They actually FaceTimed that night, um, which I thought was really great. He said he he found a lot of comfort in Devonte, just giving him some words. Um, Jason Tatum, I, I asked a lot of players like if there were guys that they left the bubble feeling closer to, and he Jason Tatum said that there was a night that he sat and just talked to Montrez for like two hours. Um, and they became really cool from that. Um, I feel like I'm missing maybe something else. Bam told me a story about obviously Jimmy Butler and the coffee. And I was like, well, like, have you had the coffee? He's like, no, he said, I want to be a part owner. I'm not going to try the coffee until I'm a part owner. And I said, well, I assume that's not happening. And Bam said, well, Jimmy said I could be a part owner for two and a half million. (laughs) And I said, I assume that you uh, didn't take that offer. He's like, no. So I haven't had the coffee, uh, which I thought was funny. See, the young athletes, they've all learned from LeBron. Take the the equity. (laughs) Don't just become a sponsor. Take the equity, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I think those are the ones that, they really stick out to me. Doc Rivers told me a story actually that um, the year that Obama was running for president, he was in the middle of a game as the election was being called. And he looks over to his right and there's like a black couple and the woman is crying. And he looks at the woman and he's like, what's wrong? Like, is she okay? Is she okay? And her husband, assume, assuming is her husband goes, yeah, she's okay. Barack Obama just won. So Doc Rivers calls a timeout for like literally no reason, but calls a timeout, has his team come over and tells them that Barack Obama um, won the presidency. Um, that didn't make in the story, but I thought that was a really, really nice story as well. well I'm, I'm glad it made this podcast. Um, <laughs> l- last, last one. You made an art form of playing heads up um, with, <laughs> yes. with the players. Uh, I'm, I love heads up. I think I'm, I, I don't think I'm being immodest. I think I'm quite good at heads up. I think I'm a very Me good too, heads up player. Yes. Um, uh, who was the best and who was the worst at heads up? Uh, I will say, honestly, that was one of my favorite things I did in the bubble was that like the heads up, we did these compilations. It was really, really fun. Uh, I would say there was two best. Kemba, even though his clues are a bit unorthodox, he was good. He was Well, you have good. a Kemba line. I had forgotten about Kemba, uh, Kemba's description of Harry Potter uh, and the Sorcerer's Stone was, they'd be, they'd be flying on brooms and yeah. and And I'm like, well, that doesn't necessarily lead me to the first book. Like, I need, to, I need a little more information to get to the right. first book. That's Luckily, all the books. 
I am like a Harry Potter stan. So I just ripped through all the books and he's like, that one, that one, and it worked. Uh, but yes, that was its clue for Harry Potter. Uh, JJ Reddick was very good. Uh, so I say Kimba and JJ were the best. Uh, maybe Kelly Oubre third best. Worst by far was Josh Hart. Uh, he was he was not good. Um, oh, Jamal Murray was also very good as well. But JJ and Kimba stick out the most for the best, and Josh Hart sticks out the most for the worst. But sorry, I said Jamal Murray, and there's actually just one thing I want to say, if you would allow me to, because um, I think that's important. So for the story, I interviewed Jamal, and he was fantastic. We talked a lot about why he was able to thrive in the bubble, what made the Nuggets special, his interview, because those were vital to the bubble and they were great stories and they were, I think they, like I said, they were really, really important. Um, and I know that when some people saw the illustration for the bubble and when they read the story, they said, okay, well, Jamal Murray's only in here once and there's no Nuggets in this in this illustration, even though the Nuggets were in the Western Conference Finals, I think all of that is so fair. You're talking about the illustration that accompanies the story. I'm, yes. I'm, looking, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, there's yes. a lot of, there's 20 players who are probably in, in yeah. Nuggets. Yeah, in yeah, Nuggets. Now, and I think that is so fair. And granted, I obviously didn't do the illustration, so that's not my thing. I love the illustration. I think he did a fantastic job. It's cool. But I do want to say that when I was writing this story, I talked to a lot of my friends who are writers. And one thing that we kept on saying is that you gotta let the story tell itself to you. So I came in here thinking I was gonna have this big chunk about what basketball was like in the bubble and players that played well and their staff, their differences between out bubble and the bubble. I was like thinking that was the story. But the more I did these interviews, the more I talked to guys, like the, the story just wasn't about basketball. And so a lot of Jamal's stuff ended up not being in there, not because Jamal wasn't fantastic, because he was, but because we saw what happened on the court, but we didn't see a lot of what happened off the court. And I felt like that was the heartbeat of the story. So for those that felt away about there not being a lot of nuggets in there or not being a lot of suns in there, that is so fair. But I just want people to know that I did speak to Jamal at length um, and I did still put him in the story, just in not the in the way that I envisioned him to be. So. I just think that that's maybe something that happens with with writing, and you just gotta figure out like what is the, like what is the the heartbeat of this story. And I felt like it was all of those other little off the court anecdotes. Rank the Harry Potter books best to worst right now, Taylor. Looks <gasps> under the gun. Oh my goodness. Okay, I am going to say Deathly Hollows Part One. There's no, the, the, full full stop full stop. There's only one that there's no part one. That's the movies. I know. But Deathly but Hollows I, is just a book. I know, but I did the movies because most people see the movies. So I'll say Deathly okay. Hollows. Okay. I'll say Deathly Hollows. Then I say Order of the Phoenix, Half Blood Prince, Goblet of Fire, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, Sorcerer's Stone. So Chamber of Secrets is underrated. I'm glad that you, you put it in the middle there. Chamber yeah, of Secrets is underrated. Yeah, I love Chamber of Secrets. Um, I go five, six, four are my top three. So Order of Phoenix, Order of Half the Phoenix, Blood Prince, Half-Blood Prince, Goblet of Goblet Fire. Goblet of Fire yeah. are my top three. Someday I'll reread seven. I, the last one. I remember not loving it, as, love as, it? as much oh, as I thought that I, I should. I loved it. 
I the after the afterward is problematic uh, <laughs> on, on, on a number of levels. Um, it's so funny because with Harry Potter, like when I was younger, uh, there was this bookstore near my house called Books a Million. And every time a new Harry Potter book was coming out, they would throw a party at midnight. So I'd make my mom take me, you bring her a sleeping bag, you wait. There's like people dressed up acting at Harry Potter scenes and you buy the book at midnight. I would go home and finish the book in like two days. Like I love Harry Potter. I want to reread them. I really, really do. Well, my daughter is too young to listen to this podcast, so hopefully she'll never hear it. But I think 25% of the reason I became a parent was to uh, go to have an excuse to go to theme parks and read uh, Harry Potter books as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> 20, 25% was to embarrass her or any other child I might have in the future. Like I'm definitely gonna be an embarrassing dad who like, <laughs> like bye honey, I'll see you, I love you so much and drop off, drop off. And then like 50% is like love and affection and like starting yes. and all that Just stuff. Just that some of it, yeah. yeah that's okay, like wait, the, I, have the, a, I have a question for you before you go because there's, there's two things I'm passionate about in terms of like entertainment. Harry Potter and The Wire. Have you seen The Wire? The Wire is my all-time favorite television show. Okay, I'm going to rank my seasons for The Wire. And I, I would hope we're on the same page with this, okay? Oh, hold on, hold on. I just, I just want to think for a second. Okay. Okay. Okay, uh, okay go. By far, season four is number one. So I go four, three, one, two, five. Can you see that? You can't see that. Four, three, one, two, five. I just wrote it down. <laughs> yes, see? Look, I knew I liked you. I knew I liked you. And let me tell you why I respect that list so much. I don't respect anyone who put season two last. Season two is underrated. Season underrated. two, I've told this before. So I binged The Wire um, and I had been prepared by people. You're not going to like season two. Just get through it. You just got to get through it. And I watched it and I was like, this is awesome. What are people talking about? Like, so this good. is a, this is a huge part of the show. Yeah. And like David Simon at one point, he says like season two, it had to show people that like it's bigger than just Baltimore. Like you have to show that. So I think it really is necessary to the fabric of the show. Have you read All the Pieces Matter, that oral history? I, I had. I had. Oh, and good. I have had Jonathan Abrams on the podcast oh, to talk about you? it. Oh, yeah. my God. Like, okay. See, look. We're right here. I love it. <laughs> All right. So everybody, you got to go. Everybody needs to read this story. Taylor Rooks in GQ. Let me read the title again. I have to scroll down. The most magical place on earth inside the great NBA bubble experiment. Um, congratulations. It's a beautiful story. People can follow your work at Turner and Bleacher. Uh, Taylor Rooks, thank you for making some time for us. Thank you so much for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.